Rich, I'll introduce you first because then um, Ben. Ken. <laughs> Don't do that. You're, you're, he's going to be like, you're going to hear like, let me talk to my next guest, Ben. <laughs> where people strive to conquer the digital landscape, the best leaders are moving forward and planting flags. This is the Oil & Gas Digital Doers Podcast, where you can hear about the thrill of digital victory and the industry's best guidance on how to win with your host, Michael O'Sullivan. Yes, I do love that music. Uh, I also I also love our voiceover talent, Mel, who uh, uh, Mel does a fantastic job, and she also uh, you may recognize her as uh, as the voice that does the intro for the Oil and Gas Tech Show. So uh, that sh- that's of course is my other my other one, which is kind of a sister show to this one. Um, and, and Mel does the intro for both of those. So Mel, if you're out there and you're listening, uh, thank you for being uh, for, for for being a great voice talent. Uh, the Tech Show, by the way, if you haven't. Um, if you haven't heard, if you're if you're listening to this, which by the way, welcome to Oil and Gas Digital Doers, the all new Oil and Gas Digital Doers podcast. Uh, you probably knew that when you pushed the button, but I feel like I'm supposed to say it at the beginning. And if you haven't also listened to Oil and Gas Tech, which is my other show, both right here on the Oil and Gas Global Network, which by the way is the largest and most listened to podcast network for the oil and gas industry. If you haven't heard the tech show, then if you like digital doers, then you're going to like the tech show because we we we, we get a little bit more into the technology there. Whereas on this one, we talk more about uh, and and here comes getting digital done. You're an author. You're a speaker. You're uh, uh, what did you say the other day? We were doing something. You said a, sim- a simple mathematician. I'm a simple mathematician. That's uh, all I am. You're simple. You also um, you also have this future predicting thing that I love. Uh, what else? What else do you want to say about yourself before we get started? <laughs> well, I just I'm just a guy who's trying to be a student of companies. Um, what else did, should people know about you? Uh, I like uh, photography. Uh, I like drones. Mike gives me, gives me a hard time because I have the word samurai on my LinkedIn profile. <laughs> I spent, yeah, that, that part is actually a little true. You are a real, I saw a picture yeah, of you I mean, in it's, the it's samurai. Yeah, exactly. And I'm uh, not open for challenges. So, yeah, you know, it's it's because of COVID. I can't face a, another samurai face-to-face for a long time. That's the, <laughs> because that's the... That's the only reason why. Because that's the danger, right? That is yeah. dangerous, yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. Because, yes. okay. you know, you, you, you'll be less than six feet apart, which yeah, is with two are. swords. And you're not... And it's and it's the virus part you're worried it's about, virus, not, yeah. not the yeah. swords. Although, the technically, so, if, you swords the, are not a if you wear the full armor, you have a mask on, so that just... You know, well, then you're safe. And you're safe. Yeah, you're, you're safe. good. Yeah, thanks for having me. I yeah. went back and actually uh, listened to our original podcast and thought to myself, do I think Michael is that funny? Why am I laughing? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, laughing I was just taking so a drink of water. You can't do that. You can't do that to me. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you do actually answer your question. So, um, so this, no, this is good. And, and I have, so as long as we're telling, you know, the true stories, uh, the reason why Kayla and I are recording today is because she texted me like yesterday or the day before and said, Hey, when am I going to be on your podcast again? So, um, so you basically kind of strong armed me into this. Uh, My father got a hold of the scale model of this plant, literally six feet by eight feet by about four feet high, built a hundred percent to scale, this huge fractionation thing. And he thought it'd be a great idea to bring it home and give it to me as a, as a fun gift. So I could see what this plant looked like. You can imagine my mother wasn't too enthusiastic about having an eight foot by six foot by yeah. four foot high model sitting in our, our living room. And so I started in Barnett Shell, but really like optimized an artificial lift. And I think pumper really came to terms because you think of the rod pumps, right? So trying to optimize and yeah. run sure. rod pumps. And for me, artificial lift and gas lift and um, just bringing wells on and, and, Turn in crescent wrenches and pipe wrenches and and slinging hammers, right? So definitely started out in the field, um, in the truck all day working on wells, and then um, so kind of went through the so artificial lift did, route. So how? So I'm a little curious, like, how, 
was this like you always wanted to do this? Like when you were a kid, you hung out in the garage looking at all the tools and saying, someday I'm going to get me a big crescent wrench. Like how was <laughs> If you don't have enough scope and enough exposure to enough companies in different places, you know, you don't have, I mean, you guys yep. have a good perspective. So yeah, we, we all have to say like, we're not, we're not here to make PowerPoints. We're here to actually get it done. Yeah, right? yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, that's... <laughs> That's a, that's a technical term for it. It is a technical term. Yeah, GST. I did want to also mention this, and we're going to get to the topic today, folks, by the way. But, uh, but um, David, there's so many interesting things. So you have a – now, this I did know about you. You have a PhD in rhetoric. That's, that's, how, that's how we get to call you doctor. Um, uh, but rhetoric is rhetoric, uh, which, you know, is not something that uh, nowadays that people – I mean, we're, it hasn't, we haven't done a lot of Socratic circles for, you know, in, in recent years. So uh, rhetoric isn't something that people talk about a whole lot. But uh, so what it, so, but you've told me some interesting things about why you got into that. And I think it kind of ties into your business. So like, talk about that. just. For- yeah, well, you put your finger on the first part of it, which is the Socratic part. So um, when Aristotle's going through his compendium of things you need to know about life. He talks about logic. He talks about all of these different things. And he says at one point, well, really, I've talked about everything you need to know. If people made their decisions on the basis of good information, we'd be done. But actually, they don't. So we need to talk about this other thing called the rhetoric. I want to ask you what's going on with IBM here lately. We do want to talk about digital transformation. Um, but for those who maybe missed the exciting Tom and Jerry episode, today's just... But it, but see, I still have the... You have the celebrity factor because it's Jerry Lewis. It's true. It's I, So I got Jerry... I mean, maybe I... Like if I do my best Dean Martin impersonation, maybe... <laughs> hey, lady. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, he so, was slightly before my time. My parents named me after him, but, uh, you know, he so was... They, so, so they did actually name you after Yeah, him. at first they didn't tell me that, but I think it was a little bit like, you know, boy named Sue. I am here with, uh, with two different guys from two different companies that are working together. And it's kind of an interesting matchup. So... Uh, so we have, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the harder one first. We have Hovard Listensen. Nicely close, done. Close for an American guy. That's not so bad. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank you so much for, for having me here. <laughs> yeah. um, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity. Yeah, so my name is Hovard Ostensen. I, I work for I said, yeah, I said it did. just like that. You, you <laughs> did. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that was good. That yeah. was really good, Got actually. Yeah. So. No, I, I, I work for Kongsberg Digital. And uh, Kongsberg Digital is a company that is part of the bigger Kongsberg Group in Norway, right. headquartered in Norway. Um, and that is a company that has very rich history. It goes back yeah. more than 200 years, actually. And it goes back before that to the silver mines of Norway, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't remember what we talked about, but uh, <laughs> it was something good. So, so who are you in, in, in data gumbo world? All right. Well, likewise, I'm uh, really thank you for having me. Today. Sure. And yeah, looking yeah. forward to this. This is a really exciting topic for, for us. Uh, like Kongsberg, we're, Data Gumbo has not been around for, for 200 years. We've just been. No. No. <laughs> no. Andrew looks really good for 200. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what about George? So um, let's start with the, with the fun part. Uh, like where like have you seen any disasters have you seen any <laughs> have you seen any anything where you can say you can look back and go well that definitely did not work well michael not only have i seen disasters i've you been ca- have you caused the, them? the agent of disaster <laughs> okay. in the number of times i guess that's what makes me such a good author i've made so many mistakes and i can sort of write about that right. and, and coach sure. other people to not making those mistakes but yeah i i have seen a lot of efforts under this whole sort of digital transformation label go south and um and and you know everywhere from disaster to just simply not right generating the value that it was that that it was intended and that's it's really sad i've seen a lot of successes we're going to talk about that before we conclude here but um in the in the disaster category i've had a chance to now reflect on uh well a couple decades of doing things wrong and uh, I'd say there is a common thread among them, and that is these digital transformation efforts have made their goal 
digital transformation. Yeah. That's wrong. Um, the, the goal of a digital transformation effort should be to make money or right. to solve a problem that in turn makes money. Yeah, yeah, if yeah. you cannot anchor your digital transformation efforts to a specific business problem, you're compromised from the get-go. And yet I've seen so many where yep, yep. there's been this big fanfare and beautiful flyers printed up and lots of PowerPoints announcing our digital transformation effort. And when you ask, well, what, what is it that we're actually trying to do? The answer comes about, well, we're going to build a data lake or a data warehouse. We're going to get our data house in order, that sort of thing. And I, I just I just have to shake my head. Yeah. I mean, coming at it from a purely technology, purely sort of IT perspective is the wrong way. Is technology important? Absolutely. It's important as an enabler. So the real watchword here, and, it, and I'm so glad, Michael, that this show is called Digital Doers because um, this is really to appeal to those of us out in the audience who are actually trying to make this stuff work. Right, right. And, and the, the piece of advice I would give to them is don't do di digital transformation, but rather go solve problems. And what you'll end up doing is you're going to go solve a major business problem, yep. untangling a complicated supply chain or building a forecasting model or right. uh, generating a, a pricing algorithm like we were talking about before the show. <clears throat> go, go solve that problem using digital methods and then solve another problem and then another and then another. And pretty soon you're going to turn around and, and say, oh, you know what? We, we just digitally transformed the company. We didn't realize we were doing it. <laughs> we're right. actually solving problems right. along the way. We were making money right. for the company along the way. That's the proper way to do digital transformation. Yeah, no, that's that's right. I mean, um, so it makes me think of a couple things. One is, I feel like this is not the first time in the history of you know modern computing that we've tried to say, let's not just do technology for technology's sake. Um, I mean, I remember back in the IT boom in the '90s, we were supposedly learning that lesson right um but we kind of it, it because there's 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 excitement and there's um a hype cycle as gartner refers mm -hmm. to it right and there's pressure you know people who are in positions of leadership within companies feel pressure right because their people above them are saying hey how come we're not doing one of those data lakes we should be doing that right right and 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 so you, you, so we, it seems like we always step into that same uh a little bit of that same trap uh every time the next wave comes along yeah and it's it's one of those sort of half true arguments michael where yeah it is good to lay down infrastructure that that is not a bad thing that is a good thing that's what companies should be doing but the infrastructure shouldn't be the goal right. the goal should be right. that you are going to use this apparatus to make money. There should be a, a, a solid economic case tied to everything that we do under the banner of digital transformation. Yeah, yeah. And then what we saw around the middle of 2020, we saw a massive adoption of uh, digit, remote working opportunities and remote working uh, well, um, all those things that contract. were possible before, before yeah, because, exactly. of, because of security and 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 all, and all the yeah. same. And then we just threw caution to the wind. And, and we this is what your naysayers in these yeah. organizations. Uh, well, two things were also happening at the same time. A lot of them were approaching retirement age, and they were often enjoying you know fantastic retirement careers. Sure. So there was some new uh, new way of thinking about challenges coming in. It was uh, also the tech industry. The tech industry decided to uh, invest heavily in energy, and yep, we're seeing yep. it now. In fact, it's sure. ramping up exponentially yep. now. So that that kind of relationship uh, grew, and partnerships grew. So thinking and opportunity and society pulled the energy industry in a digital direction. Yeah. Right. And the fact that people had to slow run operations remotely, and they realized that all their data was still stored in silos in some places, and it wasn't possible. We're always to, shocked when we find that out. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. you don't really know. You know, it's <laughs> it's, like uh, <laughs> everyone has these like fantastic ideas on, on how to do things, but you suddenly realize, oh, I don't have access to you yeah. know uh, some field data. I don't yeah. have access to that. I can't actually do that. I can't send. So right. those things, and we're seeing those changes coming in now. So that's that's really where it is. And then what we're finding is, now that we know where the problems are, how do we solve them? And the challenge yeah. there is, uh, if you still solve them in a monolithic way and you're very concerned about, uh, you know, sharing information, even internally, forget externally, uh, those organizations don't succeed because they can't scale and they can't grow and they will fundamentally revert to their 
2014 way of uh, existing, right? right? So they'll do pretty well for themselves. Yeah. But then over time, they'll basically uh, they'll have a decline curve, right? uh, And and that's it, right? Um, And I think like uh, MIT did this like study into like four types of successful companies, and you know companies that actually have these like multiple verticals for success are ones that have uh, horizontal access across all the verticals. So you have like you know sure. uh, yeah. a pretty 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 consistent R and D company that, and you have this vertical across across all those usually do more successful. The ones that are still very conservative in their uh, growth, they can do well, but they'll only see like incremental growth, and then eventually that'll decline yeah, over yeah, time. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Right. So, yeah. So we're so we're learning all those things, and and I I think though that people are. Most people are, most companies, most leadership are on board. Like the culture has swung in the direction of, yes, we need to be doing this. But well, but not everybody was off to a running start. So, um, uh, and, and not everybody really knew what to do. And so some mistakes were made, right? And we, were, we talked about this earlier, but like one of the mistakes was like maybe taking certain people and putting them in charge of things that they didn't have the, I mean, you saw some of that, right? Where, where all of a sudden there's this new domain called the digital thing and there's supposed to be a roadmap and there's supposed to be right. And, and you take some, some guy who was a, like a sub C engineer and like, like, like you're now in charge of digital for sub C. And and a lot of that had to do with, uh, I think the way that, uh, Seniority and promotions worked in uh, multiple organizations, you know, yeah, across sure. across across the industry. Right. right, is that normally people would uh, they'd have a linear path for growth. Right, they usually came from a heavy petroleum background or you yeah. know like a subsea engineer, and uh, they would move into management and they would have some technical background and some operational background and they would right. move into senior leadership roles. And, yeah, and that's really what they did when they when digital technology came. Right, sure. and, and they perfectly competent. Somebody people. had to lead it. Someone had right. to lead it. Right, right. and so. who do you hire? You hire someone that's very familiar with the domain and. and um, those don't necessarily produce the best results because digital itself is not a, a it, it's a discipline by itself. It is. To understand it, it, it across the organization. Right. right. So, right. Uh, but then, like I said, as, as, tech, as the tech industry started percolating into the oil and gas industry, we saw this relationship and we saw retraining of people. And, that's, mm-hmm. and I strongly encourage that. I left the Air Force to become a commercial pilot. I had that, that was okay. uh, I got that marriage. That explains badge. why you're here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So my yeah, my <laughs> not a good commercial pilot. <laughs> the, the road <laughs> the road that I took to get to where I am today is long and winding. Let's just so we may have way. to just have a separate episode just to do the Rich Copsy story. <laughs> we um, certainly could. There's some, there's hair extensions in there. It gets crazy. <laughs> It, 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 you know, sometimes I do need a I do need a guest at the last minute, so I'll keep that in mind. We might be able, we might have to come back to that. All right, and also um, Ben Kennett, <laughs> um, and you're the you're the longtime ex on Mobile. It's, it's, it's been a long time, right, that you've been here, or am I remembering wrong? Oh, you're right. Yeah. Uh, I started working straight out of school twenty years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So not, so this is it. Well, so so before this campus, where or were you at one of the other fifteen different? Uh, you weren't at Greenspoint, I hope. Cause no, was, no. I I spent most of my career overseas. Um, uh, uh, I'll call it batting back before between um, Europe, Africa, Asia, um, and most recently back in the U.S. Actually, it's funny. I actually have that in my notes here. Uh, let's see if I got this right. Uh, Singapore. So the countries that you've lived in are Singapore, Norway, Scotland, England, South Korea, Angola, Kazakhstan, and Louisiana. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's the whole. That's a lot. That's a lot. And, and but you were an operations guy, right? So, operations and projects. Yep. So so for so we have a lot of um, we have a very diverse audience. I mean diverse in different ways, but diverse in terms of people that work in different parts of the industry or people maybe who aren't in the industry and they're trying to learn more about the industry. So like when we say shop talk, when we say you were in operations and projects, um, which are two different things, like what is that? Just like sum that up for folks. Operations is like field operations. If you think about um, managing an asset, whether it's, you know, uh, offshore in the North Sea or a large gas plant um, in Southern Europe or an FPSO in, in West, offshore West Africa, that's that's field operations where your day-to-day kind of ha- folks hands-on tools doing work, right. if you like. I call it the people with the grid underneath their fingernails. 
um, projects are, are major capital projects where it's, you know, a, a four year type of assignment where you're, you're going from front end engineering design all the way through startup of a major capital investment. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, and sometimes again, a project like gets to a point and it, ter- it flips over to operations, right? That's exactly what happens. Yeah. So at some point in time, after you get it designed and built and commissioned, you hand it over to operations. Right. right. And yeah. all those people are very fluent in each other's language and work exactly the same way and are great at communicating and the handoff goes smoothly, right? You know, the operations people don't necessarily always like the construction people. The construction people don't like the design people. The design people don't necessarily like the concept selection people. That's yeah. kind of the way that it goes. <laughs> sort of a backflow problem. Yeah. But, but, but one thing that they all don't like um, is, uh, we were joking before about science experiments. Um, this this digital transformation thing wasn't something that they, all the that 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 crowd embraced very uh, very rapidly, right? Yeah, I think uh, digital transformation does in some circles, let's call it operational circles, especially with folks with a lot of grit under their fingernails. They think about it in very abstract terms, and when people come to them sometimes with various concepts. Um, it can be difficult to just get past kind of the front door, if you call yeah, it. Yeah, sure, sure. And I. So, how, so, so, what, what converted you? Well, so, I, well, I would say. By the way, you are in in, the, yeah. in this. And, and what is your? So, your I have it here somewhere. Uh, yeah, well, your upstream uh, technology acceleration, something like that, right? <laughs> yeah, we we have a little group called the Acceleration Hub for Research and Technology. Um, I think part of my penance, if you will, of, of being in the company for the last 20 years and doing only projects and operations and not yeah. really seeing the front end of then right. all that research and technology and the benefit of it, um, that's why I'm here. And also to be converted, if you will. So Yeah. yeah. So, you're, so hopefully your time in purgatory will be short. <laughs> so you got a few. You told me a few stories earlier. Uh, you got a couple of things. You got some midstream companies. You got an upstream company. Um, some good stories. Where, where do you, which one do you want to start with? Yeah, let's start on the midstream side. Um, you know, we have a pretty strong conviction internally that we do not create problems for the benefit of solving them. Uh, So, you know, I think we definitely have a bad rap as an industry around digital transformation and being laggards. There's there's actually a lot of innovation that's going on day to day. Um, It's just about attaching it to critical near-term business problems that you're trying to solve. Um, So when we started working with this midstreamer, we got brought in and there were very segmented teams. So you had quality management, you had um, production accounting, you had supervisors, you had the executives mm-hmm. in, in the office, and really all of them had different um, thinking and priorities around how to solve what ultimately turned out to be a facilities balancing issue. Right. Um, so, you know, accounting had suggestions of how they were going to solve it. Quality and volume management had theirs um, around how they were going to measure and solve it. And so really being able to get all of these uh, collective teams on the same page around what were the highest priorities and how could they work on it together um, was a big um, milestone for them. And really, if you think about where things get siloed or trapped um, with individuals, it's because they're not leveraging the right technology in a yeah. lot of ways. And so being able to pull in, you know, all of their third-party lab samples, all of their measurement, IoT devices, right. all of their truck receipts, you know, I mean, there are a lot of data points that you're talking about here. So being able to ingest those into a common repository and then also establish the relationships of how, you know, the dollar amount relates to sampling decisions, how the dollar amount relates to some of the meter or measurement decisions that you're going to be yeah. making yeah. Um, really provides a holistic perspective. So, you know, things where the facility would have been out of balance by five to six percent, we could get it within one percent. And that was month over month to where you're looking at an average cost savings of at least $500,000. So pretty substantial in terms of... Per per month. Yep. Everyday business decisions that you can make um, more rapidly and, 
you know, more accurately by having everyone on the same playbook operating from the same source of the truth. Yeah. Okay. So we got to, let's like back up on that a little bit. So you talked about facilities balancing. So we have a, we have a broad audience, right? And not, and, and that's an interesting concept. Like explain that just for those who maybe aren't familiar with what do you mean by, you know, a facility being 6% out of balance versus 1% out of balance? Yeah. So a lot of these facilities are responsible for, um, taking in a certain amount of crude or NGL or natural gas. Oftentimes they are blending them to make other products on the back end um, or meet other specifications uh, to send into the refineries. And so it's about making sure that you're in a healthy balance of what comes in and the dollar amount is what goes out um, and, and whatever profit balance they're looking for there. So it's pretty simple, but I mean, you know, I come from the upstream background and I had this notion of thinking of like, really how complex could midstream (laughs) actually be all these upstream, you know, interesting problems that I'm working on. Actually, it's way more complex. (laughs) Really interesting. Interesting. (laughs) It makes me feel like an idiot every day (laughs) of the week. Um, and you know, I think a lot of people are hesitant to really get into, midstream and refining because it is extremely complex. It runs 24 hours a day and it is very reliant on physical equipment. Um, You know, you have things that are actually happening in these facilities real time. And I think it's intimidating for a lot of, you know, quote unquote technology companies to go in there. I mean, if you look at the people that we have on our team, Mm-hmm. We have paired data science and technologists with, you know, people who have worked in refineries, people who have implemented process yeah. control systems. So, you know, real world thinking partnered with technology and data science is really um, a lot of our secret sauce on how we've been successful. Because we talk about this a lot, and the idea that a lot of these uh, industrial systems that are out there that involve computers for controlling processes and things that they do produce a, a bunch of data, yep. um, and and but the but the kind of the working assumption is always or the understanding is that all the data that they produce is mostly just for the sake of supporting the function that it's connected to, and then once that function is complete, you know whether that thing the thing is opened or closed or whatever happens, then that data is really no longer useful. And today what we're doing with digital transformation is we're saying, hey, we'd like to get at some of that data because we can use it for other purposes. But I think what you just said is even within the contained system itself, a lot of the data that's being produced isn't even being used to support the functions that it was there for? Is that yeah, in fact, especially within the contained uh, system itself, because, you know, some of this data is being, well, I, sh- I probably should should be careful. Some of the data is being sent to central systems, maybe, you know, ERP systems or MES systems, you know, for manufacturing operations, that, that kind of stuff. So some is being used for overall coordination, control and tracking, right. Which is important. You have to do that. So that's not going away. Right. And, and some of it might be used for, you know, real time control. So, you know, when, when a, a, machine hits a hundred degrees, the, the cooling pump turns on, right? Yep, you know, some right. of that is being done today, but there's a, there's a wide gap between those two things. So rather than only just turning the cooling pump on when the machine gets above a hundred degrees, w- why not, you know, intelligently predict exactly what level of coolant flow will always keep that machine at, at 82 degrees, which is the optimal operating temperature, which you've learned over time because you're doing data collection uh, right, and a machine right, right. learning model has has told you that 82 degrees is exactly the right temperature to keep this thing at all the time if you want to maxim, maximize production efficiency, right? Yep. yep now, now I don't know, that, that may sound like, to some of you, you'll be saying, well, yeah, we're doing that already. Great. Uh, a lot of you <laughs> are saying that. Half of those people are yeah. lying. Though, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe. And, and, and some are saying, well, that sounds like science fiction. That, that's impossible, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's actually not impossible because now we've got to the point where we can take instead of sort of hardwired, you know, PLCs and, and control systems, we can now have more software-based uh, systems that can take the intelligence right down close to where the data is being generated. So you don't have to put 
terabytes of data up into up into any central cloud or central system. You mm-hmm. can do that processing locally, but still make it in real time, still be able to control machines and systems, uh, you know, as they're generating the data and, and maybe we'll get to this after, but, and be able to do this in very complex environments that are either partially or totally disconnected from central systems, from from hyperscaler clouds, from the public internet, because it's the other thing we see a lot in Industry 4.0 is they are not able to either, for the reasons we can discuss, connect these systems into you know higher level clouds or control systems. So how do you run these complex edge computing uh, applications when you when it's hard to access them? You know, that's another yeah, variable, yeah, yeah. another reason why a lot of companies aren't doing much of this yet today because they haven't cracked that nut. So now people might be wondering, digital twins and smart contracts, why are these two guys on the podcast at the same time? And that's actually what we're, what we're getting to. That's what you're working on together. Somebody had the idea that said, if we put digital twins together with smart contracts, we can do some goodness for the, for the industry. So... Who, who, where did that come from? Where did that idea come from? Yeah, so I can I can try to answer first. I mean, <laughs> okay. uh, I'll give it a try. How about that? Yeah, so, yeah. so I think the last thing that that I you know mentioned when I tried to describe digital twin, which is it's actually quite hard now because it's such a comprehensive uh, mechanism for delivering data, right, and yeah. delivering insights. What is it not? What is it? <laughs> well. We defined it as being broken into three different components, so data, visualization, and models, right? And the data component just kept getting richer and richer and richer. So I mentioned the simulations. Obviously, you want to put this real-time, you want to hook into your real-time data feeds, you want to hook into maybe your historian, and you can extend that to engineering data, et cetera, et cetera, and it becomes quite broad. So at some point, you're starting to drive supply chain data from the digital uh, twin as well. It's all coming into so, view now. So <laughs> it's it's based on the data that then converges onto this digital twin platform. Yeah. As operators, owner operators are increasingly then seeing, and this is this quite common view now, that if I'm going to invest in this very rich data environment that a digital twin is, it will contain... Uh, let's say contractual use cases, whether they're in supply chain or tied to the commodity, well, you yeah. could describe those use cases individually, but there's a there's a concept there of having a trusted source of information that's converged onto one environment, and we all, I mean, probably a lot of us, at least you know, my career, I've always heard about the data quality problem in yeah. oil and gas industry used as I've an excuse. I've heard that mentioned yeah. a time yeah. or two. It, yeah. it comes up yeah. now and then, right? Yeah. And, and, and why we can't do you something. you got to say silos somewhere. Right, in silos right? Yeah. and, yeah, yeah exactly, all yeah. of that. So, so what we've been able to combat with digital twins, in part because we have the simulation capability, is that we can generate a lot of high-quality synthetic data. And and what it actually means is that you get a better you get a better <laughs> so hold on. What, you, what I just heard you say was if the real data is no good, we're going to make up like synthetic data. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and it may seem far fetched, right? But right. but in you know one of the big problems out there is that sensors and or or I should say measurement and the setup of measurement isn't that great. And if you're trying to process a contract, it could be that some of the data points that you need to process your transactions rely on measurements that don't necessarily, well, they may not have excellent quality. They may also, in some cases, not exist, and you have to infer uh, those measurements. So what we're driving with the digital twin is to help with simulation to fill out some of those gaps, and then we build on top of that with data-driven algorithms to further enhance the data yeah, quality. Yeah. So. so where does the smart contract come in? Well, when let's take maybe a practical example, right? If you have some type of chemical tank in the field where you need to do replenishment, wouldn't it be nice if you could hook up your smart contract to the digital twin that is able to deliver the inventory values on that tank? So when the inventory drops to a certain level, you can trigger the yeah. transaction and start your supply Right, chain. right. And that's kind of where... That's one of the examples, but that's where you're starting to see that, hey, there's something that can yeah. scale here. Now, what happened one day 
you were busy, happy, pumping and turning wrenches or whatever it was you were doing, or probably managing other people doing that by now. And one day somebody walked in and said, surprise, you're now in charge of digital transformation for all of these these people out here that want nothing to do with it. So what So what did you do? What, so first of all, how, how were you so lucky enough to be – there must have been something. They saw something in your eyes that said she's going to be good at this. And, and what did you do? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, practically, that's exactly what happened. But you're right. Like I was um, artificial foreman at that point, right? And, and where I was working, again, I was I was in a BU. And so we were mm-hmm. really working in Fort Worth for some of that efficiency, right? Kind of looking yeah. towards an older field. How do we make it more profitable and really optimized? And so sure. in doing that, um, it was really kind of doing that job. And then we were bringing on all these initiatives of like, oh, pump by exception, operate by priority, whatever we're going to call it now. How do we how do we really bring in where guys are going to valuable stuff and, and that we're not focusing on the non-profitable stuff? And um, as we started doing that, it was really just kind of split efforts. And we finally kind of sat down and talked and said, okay, I'm, I'm doing two jobs probably pretty pretty badly at this point. Like I need right. to pick one and something and really decided to go down this path. And we actually created a role um, called the operations technology coordinator, which is what I was doing directly before this one. And that, really okay, I got to stop you. That, that sounds yeah, like Exxon That sounds like Exxon <laughs> You're probably you're probably not wrong. I think my operations technology coordinator. Yeah, they had a a list of names that he could pick through, and he kind of picked and that makes sense to me. Okay, okay, okay. Um, So, so you, so there you go. So, so then what happened? (laughs) So, and then, um, yeah. So, for sure, started proving out the use case that we could drive a lot of this digital and efficiency by having a voice from the field and who supports the field because we have a ton of great ideas that are really grassroots, right? right? So many times these lease operators, mechanics, maintenance guys, measurement guys, they have great ideas on how to make their job more efficient, but right. they really didn't have a pipeline of where it went, right? They might send it to a foreman. The foreman might be interested, but yeah, oh, sure. the safety thing came up or this thing came up. So so let's, so let's pause there for just a second because yeah. So give me an example because people because that sentence you just said like we had some ideas that would make our job more efficient blah 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 people say those things a lot of times in the abstract and i understand it's because we're trying to kind of generalize so we can keep the conversation moving but like give me an example like what is one of those things that somebody our biggest thing and it's so silly um it's silly when you're on the outside looking in because for any other industry it's probably crazy but it was using our phones how many times are guys out in the field with like they're on a hotspot on their phone trying to get on the laptop to do things. And right. in our daily world, at any point, I had one guy tell me, I can see what my wife is spending two seconds after she spent it because I get an alert from my bank account, but I couldn't <laughs> do anything on my phone in the company. And now in Uncon, at least, like we've embedded phones with everything, right? It's like their crescent wrench. They better have it in their back pocket. Yeah. And that's what they do. They get their data there. They input their data there. We fill out we fill out compliance forms, like everything's mobile now, um, or, or a ton of it, right? Uh, we took paperway yeah. laptops, they still use it, but it's really, if you can do it on Facebook, why can you not do it for Wells? Why can you do it from, yeah. So I'm sold on that. But so, but right so, so what, what do you got? What, what, what do we got? So, what, so what, what are we doing instead? If you can't measure, right? The so, carbon twin. The carbon twin, right? Carbon twin, yes. Which makes which makes me think of twin carbies, which is something that we used to do uh, <laughs> a long time ago on cars that had real like, real equipment on them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what we do, and so, since you mentioned cars, yeah, cars yeah. actually is a good example for how carbon twin works. When we talk about carbon twin, is we're talking about taking uh, what we do with digital twins to optimize uh, process operations. Mm-hmm. and applying that to carbon estimation and carbon loading. And so the way this works is think about think about the facility that you might operate. Uh, you already have a ton of operational telemetry coming in. Yeah. You know, you got you got temperatures, you got pressures, you got right. flow yeah, rates, yeah. all of right. this and all of these things are easy unlike GHG emissions, those yeah. things are easy to measure. Right. You're doing that all the time, yeah, right? Yeah. You have them. Right, right. And so the question then is can we use those parameters as a proxy for our carbon footprint at any point in time. And so when we, once we started looking at that, we said, well, let's try this out, right? Let's take a piece of equipment, like a car, mm-hmm. or a pump, or a compressor, let's take it in the controlled environment. In the controlled environment, measurement becomes easy. In the controlled environment, I have an enclosed space, I can, I can measure 
uh, I can measure concentrations of gases, you know, really easy. I know exactly where to look, I know exactly where to sure. measure. So that's easy. So I have a controlled environment, I can operate that equipment in a controlled environment at various oh, right. set points. To, to test whether your proxy is accurate to that's the, right. To well, the, right. Not just so much to test whether it's accurate, but to develop it in the first place. Yeah, sure. So yeah, you yeah. say, okay, fine, I'm, I, I'm looking at this operating profile, you know, these are my, my various set points for, for, for different things, and this is my output for these set points. And so you do that, you get a sparse data set, you interpolate that data set, uh, and using machine learning, we can now create a model that I can input my operating parameters, and I get a fairly good representation of my carbon output for that piece of equipment. Now, I do that for a lot of these equipments, I put it all together to represent my facility, and now I have a model that I can use to, and I'll have literally hundreds and hundreds of inputs, right? Mm -hmm, right. Uh, and it'll, it'll give me, uh, essentially, my carbon score for that asset. Yeah. Right? And so now what I can do, now that I know, I can say this, okay, fine. Tomorrow afternoon, I know I've, I've scheduled a satellite run over this asset. So I can look at my operating parameters, I can forecast that, you know, I expect my concentration of you, gas yeah, and this volume to, to be right. high. Right. Yeah. I fly over, I, I use measurement to validate my model right. and to improve my model. Right, so you're, only, so you're using those measurement techniques as the reality check to, yeah. on your model, as opposed to trying to use them comprehensively across That's right. the whole thing. So yes, and I, don't, I don't know how uh, deep your listeners are in like machine learning and AI modeling, but yeah, I mean, like if you took away a little bit of that complexity and just talked about you know pictures of people's faces and trying to then take those photos, and you're training that model saying, yeah, you know, is this yeah. a apple or a banana, and you run it through over and over again, it's it, it's really the same process yeah, here, sure. except now instead of one parameter, we're going through hundreds, and then again just retesting over and over again. Yeah, that's the the accurate. So there's another, answer. there's a kind of another important component here that, which is, because the first thing I thought of when you said, so we're going to do this instead, was I thought, okay, well, that's all well and fine, but does it please the people who are looking over the shoulders of the, but this, this approach, I mean, th this is a sound principle in statistics, well, right? Yes. When yep. you have something that's too, very complex to, well, to, to measure, uh, or to see a trend in, you use something else that you've that you've verified right. that it, the curves match. Yeah, right? they really they do this doing. in the industry already. Like right. we'll do, you know, uh, models of wells, right? When we're trying to forecast uh, you right. know, how much production is going to come out of them and what the decline curve of that production is going to be. So that statistical modeling right. is is it's not this, new. Yeah, to the, yeah, the it's like not hokey. This is a yeah. this is a so it should it should please. The you know the the powers that are trying to because yes. ultimately all this has to get reported right. and somebody has to say okay we believe you and we think that you're doing so, the right thing and even more important points. well oh. even more important than the reporting aspect of it though is eventually has to work you can start yeah it has to work but you could also then now start testing decisions to say if I make these changes uh, to that facility yeah, 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 if I do yeah, these work yeah. orders what is that actually going to do to the carbon and so you know even then taking that and baking it into you know, um, other systems to say, okay, if, if, if I want to shut down these wells because they're flaring, what, what, what does that do to my carbon output? And, and then say, well, okay, yeah, it, it's, it's actually- Modeling it in the twin. In modeling it actually with other, other factors like and the financial and production output. If you look through human history back to the very beginning when we first conquered fire, Every step forward we've been able to make as a species has been the result of capturing more energy and using it more efficiently. Yeah. The fire lets us do things like melt metals, which let us do all the things that metal enable. Right. We also, as we trap fire, we're able to do agricultural things. We're able to expand our influence. We domesticate animals. Now we can think about horsepower. It's a different kind of energy, right? Mm. We get huge groups of people together to move stones and build pyramids. That's the original kind of human energy. It's a multiplication of how many people can you put on a rope. Right. But at every stage, it's a multiplier of what can I do as an individual until we get to steam and then oil and gas right. and things really explode and our modern world becomes possible. I think what this industry, what it gets very well is that it touches everything 
and it enables everything. As I look around my office, I mean, I can't look at a single thing in this room that, well, except I've got some wood paneling, yeah. right? But aside from that, I can't look at a single thing and say, um, oil and gas didn't do that, right? And even the wood paneling, it was cut by saws that were probably powered by, yep, yep. well, electricity, but yeah, you, you get yeah, the gist, right? right? All of these things are amplified power. So this industry touches everything. It enables everything. It created the modern world we live in. Yeah. And yet, you know, along with great power, sometimes comes great hubris and great arrogance. And I think where we are right now is the industry has realized because it's so essential to everything and has been for so long, until very recently, it really didn't need to think about what people thought about it. Mm. So when you and I talked, I mean, I, I love that quote of Lee Raymond that the worst decision he ever made was letting the Exxon name be on service yeah, stations because right. now every time somebody pulls in and the price is different, they think, oh, Exxon is screwing me. I hate Exxon. Yeah. When for Exxon, it's like we're all about upstream. We actually don't care that much about the price at the pump and we don't want to be known by the price at the pump. Right. It's right. not our concern. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. But um, for you and so me Mark and Poor. people who don't listen to this podcast, we see things differently. You and I and podcast listeners get what energy does, but most people think about oil and gas purely in terms of what happens at the service station and now in terms of what happens environmentally. So I think the in, a brand has a job to do and the job is not to rename things. It's actually to help us think about things the right way. Yeah. If you think about the Got Milk campaign, Got Milk was all about think about milk differently. Think about milk not just as from cows, but about what milk makes better. As soon as you think about it that way, it transforms milk in your world, right? right. Oil and gas is at this inflection point where it needs us all to think differently about not just the industry, but what the industry enables. But at the same time, the industry has to think differently about the covenant it has with consumers and with governments. And I think it's been on its back foot for the last 20 years, thinking that either this moment was going to pass or could be managed. And I think it's manifestly clear that a different approach needs to be taken. But it takes a very powerful executive or set of executives that are in the C-suite to affect that kind of change because you've got Hmm. supply chain, you've got manufacturing, you've got human resources, finance. You've got lots of different divisions of the company that have been around forever doing things a certain way that have driven success. They're not making big changes to try to affect an outcome that's uncertain. They're used to (laughs) having a plan that's very well thought out that oftentimes is years in the making. And that often conflicts with the notions of agility and, you you know, the concepts in scrum sprints backlogs that get reprioritized all the time and and those conflicts are it takes a it takes very senior leaders that understand how that works to negotiate and drive change throughout the organization so i'd say that getting the entire organization on board with digital transformation is very hard especially for the companies that weren't historically focused on customer experience, which yeah. would be most of heavy industry. Right, right for sure. Um, and, and to answer your question then, how are we doing? If we're, if we're talking about yeah. oil and gas, I'd say we're getting a C, if, if at all. Okay. Only because we're taking some pretty heavy engineering approaches to designing our digital transformations, which in and of themselves are creating complexity that people don't know how to navigate. You know, you let go a lot of people yep. in a, in a, yep. in a, in a, you know, in COVID with the drops in oil prices and a need to cut costs and transform the companies. And this is not spe- specific to any one oil and gas company. This is across yeah, the board. Right. It's everywhere. You let go a lot of people 
which loses a lot of internal skills, you have trouble attracting new people yeah. because you know digital talent today, young talent graduating, it cares about the earth and all of that. The struggle the with the look, notion yeah. of working for a company yeah. that historically has certainly driven the economy, but not necessarily done it in the cleanest way, right? And you know what, all the, you know, the press and all of that today, it's difficult to escape the, the imagery. And so you, you've got a real war for talent on your hands and all of the consultancies and all of the tech companies are fighting for that same talent. Yeah, sure. And so sure. You, you've let go of a bunch of people. You can't get new people. It's very hard to get new people. Um, and then you've got to do battle with the legacy part of the business that doesn't really like change and usually is the engine of success of the company. Yeah. So when 99% of the profits of the company come from selling oil and gas, mm. And you want to change the way the entire company works to deliver better customer experience for mobile. It just it makes it more difficult, I think, for people to understand that value. Yeah. Um, and and, yeah. and so, anyhow, companies try to figure out. Okay, we have to perform while we transform. Mm, okay. Right. So we got to keep pumping hard hydrocarbons and all those right, things, which right. are fundamental to our business. It's the old but we still car, need to make progress. Changing problem, right? To, yeah, yeah, to yeah. satisfy our investors and yeah. the community, and to make progress toward net zero and to get, attract new talent. So let's build a structure that's going to facilitate the performance of the business and the change of the business, and then let's figure out a way to get them working together. And I think it's that connection between those two distinct entities, the existing one and the new one, that companies are really struggling to make work. Got it. Come back next week for yet another exhilarating expedition into the very real world of the best digital doers in the oil and gas industry. A production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.